Coming up on the payoff, Randy Grimes played 10 years in the NFL, was the man of the year in 1988, but all the while, as his career progressed, so did injuries, and then his addiction to painkillers took off. And with that, you know, all the underlying issues that come with addiction, uh, he lost everything, the money, the cars, the houses, but most importantly, his family. This is a conversation where I got to really enjoy the fact that we looked at the underbelly of the NFL in a sense. You know, the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the 80s had an open drug safe that people could just access. Uh, Players, obviously, could just access. But now the access that Randy has is the access to recovery, and he spreads that message to anyone who will listen. His book, Off Center, is out there, and it's terrific. He also does so much with pro athletes and recovery. Uh, and we'll have all those links in the show notes. But Randy Grimes is a great man, and he's got an incredible story. Kevin Souza. Hello. Randy Grimes. Yes. Hey, what's up, man? Pete Souza, how you doing? Hey, what's up, buddy? How are you doing? Uh, well, the book is is off center, and the the reason I want to talk about the book right away, Randy, is is because Mike Dicka calls it a, a playbook for getting back into the game of life. And you you play ten years in the NFL. You're more than what twelve years more than twelve years sober. Um, yeah, thirteen. Thirteen years, and uh, you know here you are today. You you carry the message of recovery. What was it like for you? To, to put that book together? Well, you know, it was a healing process for my family, and that was the intention all along was for everybody that was affected by my addiction to have a platform and to share what they went through and their experience. And, you know, it was always meant to just kind of be a, a, a healing tool for a ground family. And, you know, I didn't really care how popular it was out there because everybody has a great story, you know. And all of them are bestsellers, but I I felt like I needed help, you know, putting the timeline together. So I had somebody help me put, put, put everything back like it was supposed to be because, you know, the way I remember things aren't exactly the way they really happened, you know, and just because of my state of mind at the time. And of course my wife remembers things a lot different than I do. (laughs) (laughs) She, She remembers things the way they really happened. So, uh, you know, I needed that help to put everything in perspective and that, that timeline and to have feedback from my, not only my children, but my, uh, my, my mom and my brother and my sister, you know, it was just, uh, it, it was, a uh, it, it was just something that the time was right to do. You know, uh, I waited, I started this thing probably five years ago and really, uh, really got serious, uh, about it during COVID beginning of all that so I, I had that opportunity that downtime to really work on that and uh, you know it, it's, it's been great you know it's been great for us uh, as a family to heal even 13 years later but uh, you know it's been pretty popular out there the reviews have been great uh, yeah it's been selling feedback. yeah I've been I'm just looking up some of the numbers I mean people are they should and people are taking advantage of the opportunity and the message that, that that's in this book well, and I tried to write it for, I tried to put something in there for everybody. You know, uh, me and my wife have had the opportunity to do 
quite a few interventions across the country. And, you know, that's kind of why we wrote our story that that's paralleling a, a intervention that we're, we're doing, even though it's a fictitious intervention, the characters in there are all real. You know, there's that codependent. There's that one that's angry. There's that one that doesn't believe it's a disease. There's that one that's, uh, uh, that is a huge enabler. You know, there's something in there for everybody. And, uh, you know, we're just real proud of the way it turned out. Uh, you, you turned out great, uh, but it was a long road to get there. And you started out with, you know, the book is called Off Center. We can bring it back to that. You started off with a pretty grounded upbringing. Uh, when do you remember, you know, alcohol or drugs becoming something that in, in your life where the, it had gained momentum? I mean, was there any time when well, you were a kid growing up in Tyler, Texas? No, no, no. Actually, uh, there's not a lot of history in my family. I, you know, I had a grandfather who was an alcoholic at one time and he would come home drunk and my grandmother would sew him up in a bed sheet and beat him with a broom. <laughs> and he eventually, I mean, he got sober, believe it or not, but you know, there wasn't a lot of history of substance abuse in my family. Uh, matter of fact, very little. And, uh, so there was real, you know, I never saw my parents drink. My brother and sister never had an issue. Uh, uh, it's just, it's something that wasn't part of the Grimes family. I mean, everything centered around football. Did life come, did, did football come easy to you? Football came real easy to me, not only me, but to my brother, my older brother. You know, he played at Southern Arkansas, had a great college career. He was a great tight end. And, yeah, football just came easy for us. My dad was a parole officer in East Texas, and uh, he really missed his calling. Though. He should have been a coach. He coached all our teams growing up, uh, all our little league teams and, and baseball teams and everything. And, you know, we were pretty much undefeated all those years, but, he was a great coach, and he loved the game of football. I can remember sitting in his lap many times watching Dallas Cowboy games growing up in Tyler, Texas. You know, well, and and, and I love you know I'm talking to you because of recovery uh, and and the message, the attractive message you have. But I'm also a football guy, so I'm interested about your recruiting process. You you get recruited by pretty much all the major you know Division One schools, and in your area, that's part that's when the Old Southwest Conference. Uh, is in existence. And what are some of your memories of that recruitment process? Because this, Randy, I guess what was your freshman year, 79 or 80? Yeah, 79. So this is when, uh, you know, it's the Wild West of recruiting, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, and when you say all the D1 schools and all that, you know, the only D1 schools that existed in, in my mind were Southwest Conference schools, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to play in the Southwest Conference and to be be recruited by most of those schools, you know, that was a dream come true. And for people and that I, I don't know, we're talking about Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Baylor, SMU, right? Yeah, yeah, but not Oklahoma. Oh, they were Oklahoma big eight, yeah. Okay. Conference. And that was, uh, you know, that was Rice, Houston, SMU, TCU, Baylor, Tech, Arkansas, Texas, and A&M. So what were your memories of, of, of some of that recruitment? Oh, well, you know, my first, uh, my first visit was to Rice, and I loved Rice. Rice had a great program. Of course, they took us out, and we had a really good time in the city of Houston. Being a kid from East Texas, I'd never really been out of East Texas Going to the big city of Houston was a, was a, was a huge treat. 
But, you know, I, my second visit was uh, two weeks later to Baylor. And, man, when I walked out of Grant Taft's office after that visit, I knew where I wanted to go. And uh, that's also where my mom wanted me to go. And she was so proud of the fact that I had that opportunity. I had a sister that was already there at Baylor. So that, you know, I canceled all my other visits. Really? And, uh, and yeah, I, I called Coach Bill Lane, and to, he was he was the one that was recruiting me in East Texas. I said, you know what, this is this is the place for me. And uh, I, I canceled my other visits, and I was a Baylor Bear from that day on. And what about Coach Taft was so attractive that, that you just knew uh, you had to go there? And he was just like another father, you know. It, he was it was just an immediate connection, and of course his his uh, his. Uh, the spirituality and everything that he brought to that program. It wasn't just football. It was about being a better person and accomplishing goals and setting goals and, and just being a better person, you know, off the field. You know, he was, he was as much interested in how you were developing off the field as you were on the field. And of course, after meeting and, 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 uh, Spending some time with Coach John O'Hara, who was the offensive line coach at the time, you know, that, that, those, those were just the kind of guys that I wanted to be around. And uh, of course, Baylor, the campus, and everything that was going on was was awesome in itself. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but I met my wife the very first day, our freshman year. Uh, yes, I read that. that <laughs> That's like a, so your your whole life, by the way, is like up to this point. I know I say it because I I grew up in a in a nice family and you know my parents did the best they could but we had a pretty good upbringing and uh I was an athlete too played football and it was like born on third base thought I hit a triple I heard somebody say that once uh in a meet in, in a meeting and that I felt like that was me and your story and now I don't know you as a young man t- that you, that maybe you were arrogant um but you certainly uh you know Football came easy. It seemed like life came easy. You go to campus, you, you meet your wife, right? You're at Baylor. Your teams are good. You're playing with Mike Singletary, with Walter Abercrombie. I mean, it, the Randy Grimes business is going pretty well. Oh, it is. Yeah, there was no indication of what lied ahead for me. I married my wife after our junior year. You know, we didn't have a pot to pee in or a wind to throw it out of, but we got married anyway. And, uh, you know, things were – I, I wasn't even really thinking about the pros until about halfway through my junior year when I started seeing scouts come around and look, you know. You know, the year before, Singletary had gotten drafted. and did, did, uh, and there, there was a lot of guys, Frank Pollard, a lot of guys that went to the pros after that year. And, uh, you know, I really started thinking, well, maybe, maybe. You just never know. And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have a great junior and senior year, and, and the scouts came back around. Yeah, you you. And we had some good athletes. Uh, we really had some great athletes on that on that uh, that '83 team. And you go in the '83 draft, probably one of the most high profile drafts in the history of, of pro football. You know, Elway, Marino, all the rest. I say that all the time. People have forgotten about that draft. Uh, I don't. I mean, I'm just I'm just old enough. Where I mean, that draft was unbelievable, and not just the quarterbacks. And you get taken in the second round. Uh, you know, what was that experience like, that transition? I know you call, you talk about your transition out of football, right? Like almost transitional trauma, and we'll get to that. But right. your, your transition into pro football, how do you navigate those waters? And are you still staying out of trouble? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Wait, you're talking about into pro football? Yeah, into pro football, into pro football. Well, you know, transitioning into pro football, this is what it looked like. Me and my wife sitting in a one-bedroom efficiency on Fifth Street on the campus of Baylor University (laughs) by phone waiting for it to ring. Look look how much different draft days are now. You know, there's three or four day productions in Vegas with private jets and green rooms and you know, it's it's such a big deal now. But you know, I was kicking my T V trying to get ESPN to work <laughs> and sitting and it's just me and her sitting by a telephone all morning and finally about ten o'clock that morning it, it rang and uh you know, I, I thought that the Cowboys were gonna draft me actually, you know. I'd gotten some uh, some indications from the agent that I'd hired that, that the Cowboys were going to draft me, and of course they they went past me and did draft me, and you know pretty much the next draft I, I forget the order that year, but pretty pretty soon after that is when I got that call from Coach John McKay. What was he like? He was a character, right? Oh my God, I can still remember his old cigar stained voice. You know, saying, <laughs> "Hey, Randy, we just drafted you in the second, and see you tomorrow." Click. <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa, wait, where, wait, where's Tampa? I don't even know where that is." <laughs> and you get you get there, and they're they're, you know, it's unfortunate, right? You you had a bunch of teams that didn't do so so hot, but they were. I can just from an NFL film standpoint, you know, Doug Williams. I remember they made the NFC Championship, and they were in the playoffs somewhat consistently a couple of years in a row, and then you get drafted. Uh, so you had to be excited. Oh, I was. I thought I was going to a playoff team. Yeah. You know, little did I know what the next decade was going to want to hold, you know. We'll get back to this conversation in a second. But right now, a word from our sponsors. You know what? I look back, and, and even Lydia, my wife, you know, there's, there, there's no place we would have rather been and to, to raise our family. And, uh, you know, Tampa, although we had some pretty crappy teams, it was a great place to, to play football. They love their bucks. Oh, they do. They came out and wearing their cream sickles. And, you know, it it wasn't long before everybody was taking shirts off and drinking. It was a great place to to drink beer, take your shirt off, and watch good football. (laughs) And so, you you know, your life right now, you're telling this story, and it's like it's all sunshine. And then the the clouds start to come in in the world of pro football because the dirty secret, and it still is today kind of, you think about it, but, you know, the – your story is you got to stay on the field. You got to stay, you you have to keep playing. You know, your best abilities sometimes is availability because if you're in the training room, you're, you're, you're not going to, you know, you're just not going to last long in the NFL if you're hurt in the training room. Um, and, and that was your experience. What happens as far as drugs coming into play? You know, how does that take place in your life and in your career? Well, and, and, you know, when I got to Tampa, I had a, a locker next to Leroy Salmon. You know, that in itself was just mind-blowing to me, the fact that here I am dressing next to somebody I've been watching on TV, you know, one of, one of the greats of the game, one of, one of the all-time greats, a Hall of Famer. And, you know, the first thing I learned from Leroy was in some of those deep talks we used to have, and this is like at minicamp before training camp even started, in my, my rookie year was, you know, you do whatever you have to. Well, the first thing he taught me was football was not a game anymore. It was now a job. And that was hard for me to wrap my head around for a while because up until then, football had been such a game, you know. It, it, the, the pressures of, of, of a job weren't really 
on me until I got to one buck place. And you were a center too. So there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that job. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're feeding your family now, which is, which is everything, you know, all your goals, all your dreams are wrapped up in that uniform. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it definitely is a job. And the second thing I learned from Leroy was you do whatever you have to to stay out on the field. You know, because if you ever got a reputation of always being on the injury report or always being worked on by the trainers or always missing practice or something like that, you were you were sure to have a short NFL career. So I'm sure Leroy didn't mean to take a handful of pain pills every day to get through practice and a handful of sleeping pills to get sleep at night. I'm sure he didn't mean that, but, you know, I, I – I was willing to do whatever I had to to stay out on the field, and that's how I justified it. I looked at it more like a necessary evil. Did you take anything before you played to in, no. in, enhance your no. – Okay. So it was never. strictly – like to, I never, I never had the injuries that I did. I mean, when we got to Tampa, when we got in the pros, we used to beat the hell out of each other all week long. You know, and, and not that we didn't do that at Baylor, but in the pros, the game is just so much bigger, faster, stronger. And, you know, it was that, it was that, I call it that Bear Bryant junction boy mentality where if you don't practice good, you're not going to play good. So coaches would just, you know, they would just wear you out all week. And hopefully there was enough left in the tank to play on Sundays. And I never understood that coaching philosophy, but, you know, I didn't have any say in it, so I did it. I wanted to keep the job. So when did, when do you start? When's the first injury or, or the first time you can remember, you know, taking taking these prescription drugs and then maybe abusing them off the field? Well, and uh, I can remember having multiple ankle injuries early in my career. And, uh, you know, those are things that I would just tape it up even tighter and then just take a handful of opiates and, and just practice through it or play through it and all that. You know, that probably started my second year in. Uh, but again, I looked at it like a necessary evil, and I was getting it from the two doctors, so that's how I was justifying it, or I was getting it from the trainers. And we had an open narcotics safe that was in the middle of our training room that was always open. You could just go get whatever you wanted to out of there, and if it ever was accidentally locked, we had three white guys that started on defense and their jersey numbers were the combination to the safe <laughs> the whole decade I was there. <laughs> so the, that, the access was not an issue. Access was not an issue. And that, that was another way that I justified what I, like I said, what I was calling just a necessary evil. Because, you know, I wanted to be the best. And I wanted that next big contract. I wanted to be uh, all pro. I wanted to be a pro bowler. I wanted to feed my family. I wanted to be the best sitter that ever played the game. And you're mixing it up with guys like Jerry Ball, right? Like just guys up front that are just nasty. Oh, Joe Klecko, Jim Burt, Michael Carter, you know, Randy. You know, my first start in the league was against Randy White uh, <laughs> at left guard, a position I never even played in my life at Texas Stadium. So, yeah, I mean, those were the kind of men, you know, that, that – there was no Sundays off in the NFL. And how is it affecting you off the field? Are you still taking them when the, when the season ends now that your career's picking up and you're accustomed to taking them? Oh, yeah, because, you know, the injuries would just get worse or, you know, the chronic pain never went away. And, uh, you know, the, the, the benzos at night, the, uh, back then it was Halcyon, which is, you know, the granddaddy of Xanax. 
you know, it was that kind of stuff that was getting me to sleep at night when, when everything was throbbing. So, you know, it was kind of a, a dual addiction there that I always say that opiates stole everything from me, but the benzodiazepines are what nearly killed me. And so how much are you taking a day? Uh, as much as I could get my hands on. I mean, my tolerance just kept getting higher and higher. I needed more and more pills. So, you know, I was taking 45, 60 pills a day, no problem. Anybody ever Whatever. tell you, anybody on your on your team, a coach, I'm sure your wife did, um, so not her, but any any, any teammates say, hey, you, you might need to slow it down. Or was it just kind of like, don't ask, don't tell, we're all doing this? Well, you know, it's funny, and I say this all the time, not once in that eight and a half years probably that that was going on did anybody ever say, you know, Randy, why are you slurring your words, or Randy, why are you nodding off in meetings, or why are you late to practice every day, or, or why are you the last to leave the building every night and pills are missing out of the safe? You know, nobody ever asked me that because I was always playing good. Yeah. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you were the centerpiece, literally, uh, to the, the Bucks offensive line. You had, you had I had, what, five coaches in 10 years? I had five head coaches, six different offensive line coaches, and probably 10 different quarterbacks. Who's your favorite coach, your favorite head coach? Uh, believe it or not, even though he worked just like mules, was Coach Perkins. Ray Perkins? Yeah, yeah Ray Perkins. You know, he was uh, – I, I was kind of uh, – I was kind of his guy. And, uh, you know, if he ever needed anything done with the team or, and I was the team captain at that time and everything. So, but, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had, uh, some good times with coach Perkins, but like I said, he worked just like mules. And, uh, and let me ask you this and, uh, one more highlight. He really was that Bear Bryant mentality. Oh uh, yeah. He, well, he really was right. Yeah. That was, that was where he was from. Um, you, you, in 1988, and this is, maybe it's a contradiction. Maybe it isn't. You, you, you win NFL man of the year. Now at this time, I'm guessing, you are right. f- full blown addict stage. Yes, but I hit it well. You know, my wife never really caught on because me coming home tired, beat up, dehydrated, completely erect was not unusual because she knew our practice schedule. Yeah. And for me to collapse on the bed or on the couch or to not to not be present you know mentally with everybody was not a big red flag for her because you know it was 120 degrees out on the field on the turf and coming home all beat up and and not wanting to talk or or just crashing and not engaging with my family was was not unusual back then so uh that wasn't that wasn't a red flag so you win you win the man of the year um and are, are things are still still going well, I'm, I'm guessing, obviously, right? And your career is still kind of, you know, it's together uh, as, as you kind of move into the 90s. When did you n- notice, like, okay, my play is starting to erode? Um, or, or did you not feel that way? Well, I don't think that my play ever, ever did erode. But the last two years of my career, I was playing entire games in a blackout. Really? I mean, it would be 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night at home, and I would be laying on the couch. And, you know, after after playing a 1 o'clock game somewhere in the country or at home, and I would start kind of coming out of it, you know, kind of waking up, and I'd be all beat up and scratched up. And, 
you know, fingernails all torn up and dehydrated and everything you are after an NFL game. And I didn't remember any of it. I played every down at start center. And, you know, here I am, the quarterback of the offensive line. You know, I'm, I'm audible in uh, blocking schemes. I'm getting guys going in the right direction. I'm having to listen to the quarterback for his audibles and the snap count and uh, execute plays. And, and I was doing all this, but I was doing it in a complete blackout. What the hell was, do you make of that? Now that you sit back so well, you know what it is, it's the insanity of addiction. Yeah. You know, and even though this was happening, uh, I wasn't willing to stop because I was always playing good. I didn't even remember how I played on that Monday morning and I would go in and watch the film and I played my ass off. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, it, it's insane, you know, and, but that's the insanity of the addiction. And, you know, I, and, and at that point, it was still a necessary evil. I never expected to take it into my retired life, you know? Yeah, and so that's, you know, and, and that's where we'll go right now. Sam Weich, who I, I've, I've come to understand wasn't your favorite coach. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, he, you, you felt like well, you. Well, let's just say out of the five, he would, he would have been number five. <laughs> so he's the guy that lets you go. Um, and and walk us through that whole process for people that don't know what life in the NFL can be like. Well, and I'd gotten hurt halfway through that season. I dislocated my ankle, and uh, that was really my first. Well, I'd, I had ruptured a tricep a couple of years before, but I came back from that and got my position back and everything. And then that, that last year, uh, halfway through that year, I, I uh, uh, dislocated my ankle, and that was really my first huge in, injury that, that, that kept me out, uh, or, or pretty much, you know, I couldn't come back from. And, uh, you know, back then after your last game, if you weren't going to playoffs, you'd come in after your Sunday game, you'd come in on Monday and, you'd, you know, you'd have an exit meeting with your coach. You'd watch the film from the day before and you'd clean out your locker and you pretty much leave town until minicamp started up again in the spring. You know, now it's more of a year round job. But back then, you know, when football was over, you were you were out of there. Everybody was packing up and leaving. See you, see you at minicamp. Um, but that this particular year, after the '92 last game of '92 season, I, you know, I came in to clean my locker out. I didn't, I hadn't played in half the year. And yeah, Sam Lash came up behind me, put his hand on my shoulder, and said, "We won't be needing services anymore." And before I can even turn around and look to see who it was, he was. Uh, exiting the door that was right next to my locker uh, out of the locker room. And I can remember thinking, wow, that's how it ends. You know, all the blood, sweat, and tears that I've left on football fields all over this country since fourth grade, and that's how it ends. And, you know, it's not like I expected to have a parade or a, or a expressway named after me, but I just didn't think it would end like that. And I just kind of raked everything out of my locker into a black trash bag and walked out the back door and Randy Grimes, a football player, didn't exist anymore. I struggled with that for a long time. What happens? You know, trying to figure out who I was when I didn't have that uniform anymore or that playbook or that itinerary or that identity, you know, that went with, with being a, a, form, a, a not a former, but a, an NFL football player. In 1992, this is the year that your your football career ends. You didn't make, did you make an attempt to play with any other team, or, or did you retire after that? I couldn't go try out. I had to try out that off season for all the teams, and uh, my ankle just wouldn't let me. So I knew it was over. 
And you know what's funny, man? Uh, like I, I had a brief appearance with, with the Oilers uh, for a quick tryout, and I had my ankle taped up as as tight as it would go, and uh, but I just couldn't perform, you know. And, and it's and, funny uh, the th- the stuff you you fought and you took the you took the drugs so you could stay on the field like that's literally how it ended and when you could no longer remain on the field that's when they let you go I mean it was it was like your worst fear come to reality exactly you know and even though I had a good nine and a half year career uh, I just wasn't I thought I was ready you know you think you think you're ready ever off season you think you're getting ready to to, to to live a normal life and all that. But until it really happens, you don't know how you're going to react. And, you know, I call it transitional trauma, like like you said earlier. And, uh, you know, I just, I didn't transition well when I didn't have all that. And, you know, when, and, and, and the injuries just kept getting worse. The chronic pain just kept getting worse. The addiction just kept getting worse. And now I didn't have all those ways to justify it because I wasn't getting it out of the narcotic safe anymore. I wasn't getting it from the team doctors. You know, I was doctor shopping all over Houston, Texas. That was a full-time job. And, and uh, you know, that's where I retired back to. And, and the new normal in my life for the next decade plus was emergency rooms and ambulance rides and repossessed cars and foreclosed homes. I, I couldn't stop the insanity. That was that necessary evil that I called it that was really just a full-blown addiction to opiates and benzos. And yeah, and now it's really not necessary, right? Because you're not playing anymore, so you're... you're well, you're, I kept justifying it, though, because the injuries were still there. Mm-hmm. Okay. The pain was still there, you know. But no, it wasn't necessary to feed my family, no. You talk about, uh, you know, benzos were a huge part of it. How How, how bad did that get? Because I've just heard nightmare stories, and I know you were having a lot, like seizures every so often. Oh yeah, every time I would run out of those things, uh, I would have a seizure. That was scary because that could have happened at any time. And you know, I'll tell you how insane addiction is. I would drive all over Houston, Texas, looking for more benzos, just so I wouldn't have a seizure, knowing that I could have a seizure at any second driving my car. <laughs> you know, I was just that desperate. To not have a seizure, I was just that desperate to, it, it, it just, it, it got that bad, you know, and only by the grace of God did I not ever hurt somebody else or, or myself in, in the car. What were, what were some of the, you know, the bottoms for you? I mean, wh- wh- when, when did you finally get that gift of desperation? Man, there were so many bottoms. Every bottom I hit had a trap door and I would always go deeper. You know, I, uh, it, losing jobs, you know, uh, going through all my money, um, losing relationships, uh, like, like I said, cars and houses, and putting my family through all that. You know, that was that was the, the worst of it. But, you know, Pete, I couldn't stop it. You know, looking back now, why didn't I stop at that first seizure why didn't I stop at that first lost job? Because I had some great jobs, you know, and uh, after football, I had some great jobs. I had some great friends and uh, uh, lost them all because of the addiction. Why couldn't I stop that after that first seizure or that, or that first hospital detox, you know, why couldn't I stop that? But that's, you know, that's the insanity of this disease. And, and, 
uh, your your good friend and teammate, right? T- Tom McHale passes away. Um, right. And I played next to Tom for many years, and he was doing the same thing I was doing. That was self-medicating his injuries he got while he played with the Bucks, And one morning, he just didn't wake up. And how do you, how do you take that news? I mean, do you, does that move you to get into into recovery or to at least I don't know become willing, as we say? Yeah, well, you know, it, it started the process. I think uh, it scared me, and also, you know, the uh, uh, the amount of seizures that I was having, uh, and they're in those things just come on. You don't know you you don't know they're coming. You know, they can, they can just happen at any time. The fact that my daughter wouldn't let me come around my first grandchild because I wouldn't fit to be around her new baby. And uh, the fact that my wife had to take a step back and she felt like she was loving me to death and she couldn't stand it anymore. She couldn't watch it happen anymore. She had done everything she felt like she could do to, to save me and I, I wouldn't save myself. So if that was the perfect storm that was coming together in the spring and summer of 2009. And that's when I finally put up my hand and asked for help. So in and the f- a lot of it was guilt, shame, you know, maybe maybe pride, ego. You know, that's, I, when I look back and think, what kept me out there so long? And, and, and those are the only four things I can think of. And, and, and in that fall of 2009, what happens? How do you get, I mean, you literally crawl into a treatment center. I mean, how does that, how does that come together? You know, there wasn't anything out there for former NFL players then, and my wife was willing to make one more call for me. And whoever she called at the league office in New York, up on Park Avenue, uh, just happened to know somebody who knows who knew somebody who knew somebody, and that's how I got on that airplane to Florida, and that was September twenty second, two thousand and nine. And yeah, I got picked up at the airport uh, there in Fort Lauderdale. It's old dirty black town car. I remember how stinky it was and everything in that back seat. And, and I figured out halfway up, up up to the treatment center why it was so stinky. It's because it picked up people like me all day. Oh. But uh, I was leaning against the door when we pulled into the uh, to the treatment center, and somebody opened it from outside. And I just I was so sick, man. Uh, I just fell out of that car. And there's about another thirty feet to the front door, and uh, I crawled on all fours. And uh, you know I talk about that all the time. That's my greatest accomplishment was crawling in the door that night. Because if I don't do that, then everything else was uh, was for nothing. What happens to you when you get in? You know, because I know, I mean, we we all have the same story, but they're you know they're different, right? And it's like right. I can so relate. I battled for so long, or tried. You know, I took a couple uh, stabs at getting sober, but man, when I got into my this, this treatment facility. Um, you know, 10, 11 years ago, I was done. I mean, I really, the moment I came to, uh, you know, after like the detox and stuff, which, which some of that stuff can be real heavy duty. I was, I was done. Or, or I guess I'll, I'll say this. I was willing to take direction. Uh, is, mm-hmm. is that what happened with you? Like, did you start to say, Hey, I'm, I need to listen to these people. Cause that's what changed my life. Yeah. And, you know, I, a lot of people call it desperation, and it is desperation, but I, I guess with me it was more surrender. You know, I'm, I'm, I give up. You know, I've, I've been to a treatment facility before, but I didn't come into it with that same desperation that that I came into this one when I crawled in the door that night. And I heard somebody say, and I don't remember much about that night, but I heard somebody say, Randy, in order to get this, you've got to have the desperation of a drowning man. And, 
you know, I talk about this all the time. My, my most vivid memory as a kid is eight years old in Tyler, Texas, out at Tyler State Park, and I'd fallen off a, uh, one of those paddle boats, those little two-man paddle boats that you paddle with your feet. Yeah. And uh, I'd gotten my feet caught up in something on the bottom of the lake, and I, I remember how desperate I was, how I nearly drowned. How I, uh, how I clawed at the water and how I was screaming underwater and how hard I fought to get back to the surface. And that all came flooding back to me when I heard that that night. You've got to have the desperation of a drowning man. And I knew that I was in for the fight of my life. And, uh, but like I said, it's also, it was also my greatest accomplishment. How did you adjust to that new life? Because people know who you are. And this is for, you know, this podcast is just like you do with all your speaking and stuff. And, you know, you're helping athletes in recovery. Uh, and all your stuff, by the way, we'll put in, in, in the show notes so people can click on those links. But how do you, just a person, anybody, whether they're an NFL player or a stockbroker or a garbage man, how do you reintegrate, you know, into, into life again um, in, in recovery? Uh, was that a daunting task for you? Well, I knew that I had to, my biggest problem was I had to stay accountable. So that's why I started recovering out loud and, and telling my story to anybody. That How quickly did you, did all. you, did you come out like, Hey, this is my deal. Like right away. Uh, pretty much right away. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I remember, well, I'll tell you what, I remember it, it was exactly two weeks into the process and I was sitting, uh, I was sitting at a picnic table in the middle of the campus. Uh, and I was fixing to get a knee replaced. I had a knee replaced while I was in treatment. And, um, but before that they had to detox me off all those opiates and benzos that I was taking. So it was exactly two weeks into that first detox. And, um, I was sitting at this table and, and I was sobbing uncontrollably and I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a grip on myself because, you know, really for the first time in 20 plus years, I was having to deal with life on life's terms and deal with all the, the huge wake of destruction that I left in my life back in Houston. And not just, you know, my reputation, my finances, my family, everything. And I had to deal with that clean and sober for the first time. And I just, man, I couldn't stop crying. But, you know, Pete, at that very second that all that was going on, and this was my big burning bush moment in, in recovery was, it's, it was like somebody came up behind me and draped a warm quilt over my shoulders. And I, I say quilt because I remember feeling weight and warm. And not only did I have this overwhelming confidence that I could do this, but that I had to make it mean something. And that was kind of the birth of Athletes in Recovery right then because I knew there was a lot of guys that I'd played with and against who were out there struggling just like I was. And for whatever reason, pride, ego, guilt, shame, they weren't putting their hand. But usually it was because they didn't think there was any resources available to them. So uh, I didn't know then what Athletes in Recovery was going to be. I didn't even have a name for it. I just knew I wanted to to give it back away. You know, you can't keep it unless you give it away. How did you and handle so kinda, I knew I still had a lot of work to do on myself first. How did you handle getting back and you know you, you and you're so you're doing the work on yourself but you know you mentioned in some of the things that happened to us in addiction i think one of the things you mentioned that hit me hit my heart was you mentioned your daughter not one you know allowing you to see your first grandchild i remember one of the turning points for me was my brother michael he had a stepson that as far as i was concerned he didn't even like 
And he said, you can't see my kids. You can't see Kate anymore. And I remember thinking like, damn, he doesn't even want me to see Kate. You know, I was like, this, <laughs> this is bad, you know, but like for you, it's a little, a little more gut wrenching, right? Like, you, you know, your, your, your grandchild, how do you find your way back, uh, into the lives of your family? You get your wife back, you know, all this stuff happens to us, but it's a slow, it's a slow burn a lot of times, right? It doesn't happen overnight. How, how, how did you work through all that stuff? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes we think we go off to treatment and we get well and we're going to ride back in like a knight on a white horse. And yeah. It's going to be great. And everybody's going to, everybody's going to say, Hey, look at him. He looks awesome. He's back. Blah, blah, blah. Well, it doesn't happen like that. You know, there, there's a lot of healing that needs to go on and it doesn't just happen overnight. You know, we go off to treatment, we get all this therapy, you know, we, we get well, we come back, we're looking great. We've got all the color back in our skin. We're healthy. And everybody at home has been sitting in the mess that you created, you know? So there's a, I talk a lot about the, with, with that, about that, or talk about that a lot with the athletes or anybody, <coughs> excuse me. Anybody else that's going through this process, you know, there's a lot of healing that needs to go on back home. But, you know, families have to be willing to accept that healing, too. They have to be willing to do the therapy and do the groups and do the Al-Anon and all that. You know, there's got to be a willingness on their part to get well, too, and not just think that, you know, you can... It, that it that it's just all over after 30 days or 60 days or 90 days whenever your loved one comes back from treatment you know it's not over that's when it's just beginning and uh, you got to have families that are are willing to to do that and you know I was one of the lucky ones I had a family that was willing to do that work and it, it didn't happen overnight but you know and matter of fact it, it we still talk about it today you know uh, there's things that come up or we'll, we'll remember back when, or when we're helping somebody else, you know, some of that, some of those old feelings come back up and, uh, it's a, it's a process and it's a lifelong process. Yeah. It's funny. I think like for me to become comfortable with the fact that I'm not a finished product, um, has really helped me a lot in recovery. It's like, Oh yeah. Like I continue to grow or I continue to process stuff that happened to me years ago. You know, um, it's still kind of, I'm still thawing out and that's, that's cool. You know, um, uh, it's as long as I keep working a program and doing my thing, you are, were incredibly successful and I'll let you out of here. I only got about 10 more minutes. You were incredibly successful as an athlete. Um, and a lot of people I think who are trying to get sober again. Um, I think, I think I heard you say, how do you say it from, uh, from, uh, what is it? The, uh, the schoolyard to the graveyard. I forget what it was. One of those things where it's like from Yale to jail or anybody, right. Can be subject to this. Um, how do you talk to other athletes about that? Because you get people with incredible accomplishments and success and, but Oh, now they got to admit defeat. You know, the ego has to be smashed. How do you get through to those folks that that's the, the, the right thing to do or, or how do you show them to do it? Well, uh, like I said uh, earlier, you know, I think accountability is huge, but also the fact that, you know, you convince people that not only is this a disease, but it happens to good people, you know, uh, the, the people that I've helped are, are hall of famers, you know, they're, they're some of the greatest in their sports 
And, uh, you know, this happens to good people and it's nothing to be ashamed of, but you had, you know, it, it, I, I guess the message is that it's okay to not be okay, but you got to put your hands up and ask for help. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that God chose this. You know, God knows how much I love football and he chose this as a way to keep me connected to, to the game that I love so much. You know, he allowed me to help the NFL start the Player Care Foundation and start reaching out to these guys. And, you know, these guys just wanted to know that there was other people out there like them, you know, people that were struggling with life after football or struggling with their injuries they got while they were in the league. They just wanted to know that there was other people out there like that. So when I started getting out and telling my story, then they started coming out of the woodwork. And, and not just the NFL, but Major League Baseball and hockey and basketball. Pretty much every sport you can think of that has an organization that supports their former players uh, is who I started work with, uh, you know, from MMA to, to the Jockey's Guild. Uh, wow. So, you know, it's, 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 it goes across the board. And, and Park Avenue to Park Bench, I That's think it. is what I said. Uh, you yeah. know that this this affects people from all walks of life. You know, whether you're a, a Hall of Fame quarterback or or somebody that's a painter driving down the road who has an accident. Next thing you know, you're hooked on opiates. Uh, you know that's the kind of thing that happens to us. But there's hope and help out there, and you got to want it. You know, and hopefully you don't hit all the bottoms that you and I had to hit. You know, that's, that's the message, you know, is let's get this now because it's not going to get any better. And what I can promise you is that it will get worse. How important was it for you to have other players come before you? You talked a little bit about Pat Summerall. Uh, he was a guy who, long-term recovery guy, got sober, died sober, right? But uh, yeah. was, was he part of that sober fraternity um, of athletes that kind of had their hand out to help you when, when you started to speak up? Absolutely. You know, between him and coach Dipka and all that, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, it was my, it, it made it, you know, I, I'd heard that this happens to, to great people, you know, but I hadn't really seen it until those guys started coming towards, I mean, not the coach Dipka's in recovery, but Pat was, and coach Dipka was just a great supporter of everything that I was doing because he knew the struggles that his players were going through. And uh, so, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it's hard to describe. I guess it was more of a, uh, a relief to have that realization that, yeah, you know, hey, this can happen to Pat Summerall, you know, that, yeah, this, that's true. Then, then I can beat this too. And, uh, you know, Pat was, uh, he was a great mentor. Uh, it, it, it was just it, it was it was awesome to experience that. What what can you tell a story about Pat Summerall making the twelve step call on his neighbor? Oh yeah, yeah man. He told me this story. I'd just gotten sober, and I'd hooked up with him down at the Super Bowl in Miami. Uh, I was sitting at a t- table with Conrad Dobler, and uh, I, I wasn't sure that I could go on the radio or do all the interviews, the media interviews on Radio Row that I was going to do that day. I just wasn't sure I could do that because that was the first time I'd really talked, you know, on that kind of, of platform about my recovery and everything that I'd been through. But, yeah, Pat Summerall, I, I saw him down there, and we reconnected, you know, uh, 
after a lot of years of my active addiction that, that I hadn't connected with him, we reconnected down there and he told me a story about his neighbor in Dallas and how his neighbor was a, having an organ failure and how he was on his third marriage and his new wife was his drinking buddy and all that. And uh, he felt like he needed to do something for his neighbor. And um, so he got some guys, guys together from his home group there and they went over and did a 12 step call on him. And um, it was Mickey Mantle. And 90 days later, when Mickey Mantle walked out of the Betty Ford clinic, he, he, and, and this is all coming from Pat, you know, so he tells it a lot better than I do. <laughs> but, you know, 90 days later, when Mickey's walking out of the Bet- Betty Ford clinic, there was a crowd of people waiting outside. And he could have gone out the back door because there was a car waiting for him. But he chose to go up to this crowd out in the front door. You know, this is back in the early 80s. You know, HIPAA wasn't a big deal back then. Uh, you know, he walked out that front door and approached the crowd and somebody hollered, uh, you know, Mickey, what do you most want to be remembered for? And everybody was expecting some baseball related statistic or something. But he said, uh, you know, I want people to realize, I want people to understand that my greatest accomplishment in life was getting clean and sober. And, uh, the best of my knowledge or best of anybody's knowledge, Mickey Mantle died sober. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, and I tell that story back when I crawled through the doors, you know, because, you know, and I always considered myself a pretty tough guy. And, you know, I've been in a lot of battles and won most of them. You don't get to stay in the NFL for 10 years unless you're winning most of them. Yeah. But crawling in the door that night was the hardest thing that I ever did, but it was also the most rewarding. And I kind of feel like Mickey Mantle walking up to that crowd. You know, and saying that, you know, when I crawled in the door that night, that's my greatest accomplishment. You do, and you, you still are accomplished now as a speaker, right? Um, you talked about the interventions. Your wife, Lydia, is like the best teammate you ever had, I would guess. You oh, guys. She's the hero of my story, man. Yeah. I mean, you got, what, what's, what's that relationship look like today, and what does it mean to you? Oh, it, it's awesome. And the fact that we're able to give back, you know, she uses her experience, I use my experience, and, you know, the fact that we're able to give back. Because I did learn, one of the first things I ever learned in recovery was in order to keep it, you got to give it away. And that's what I've always tried to do. Not only have I tried to stay accountable and let everybody in the world know what I've been through and what I'm going through now to keep me accountable, but also, you know, you got to give it away. you got to give it back. And uh, that's been the most important part of our lives. And, uh, you know, she helps wives or, or spouses or families. And, you know, she's just so good. She, she can relate to uh, She can relate to that population so well. They can relate to her. What do you tell but the like person? Said, man, she's the hero. She's the hero of my story. What do you, that's so great, dude. That warm, it puts a, it puts that warm cloak over me, you know, when you say that. What, uh, what do you tell somebody that is, that, that, that doesn't know what to do? That, that has a problem with addiction, you know, but they're at that jumping off point. You can't live with it, can't live without it. What do you tell that person? Just what I said earlier, that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay that you're going through this, but you got to put your hand up for help. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people use fear as an excuse to not go through this process. And this is nothing to be scared of. And, you know, recovery works. There's hope, there's help out there, but you got to put your hand up and ask for it. And uh, it's available, you know, because like I said, you know, I can, the only thing I can promise you about addiction other than there is recovery if you work at it is that it will get worse. 
And, you know, this, this thing only winds up in, uh, active addiction only winds up in what, one of three ways. Uh, and that's, uh, hospital, jail, or death. Yeah. No, and we see it all around us now, and the stakes are so high now with all the drugs and stuff. Oh my gosh, it's one and done now. Yeah, you know you don't it's, uh, you don't have that luxury, and we're losing an entire generation of, of young people right in front of our eyes. You know, I saw something the other day. It was like I think I read uh, like 19 million people battle cancer every year, and like 26 million people battle. Uh, heart or, or diabetes, and then like 29 million battle heart disease, but 40 million people battle addiction every day in this country. And you know, oh. the, the, the overdose number this year, you're going to hear like 120 or something like that, but the experts say it's closer to 200,000. That's the most unreported number in the country. And, uh, you know, that's that's what a couple. That's a couple of jumbo airline plane crashes a day. And if, oh, it, if it was something like that, it would be in the news every night. But because it's it's addiction and there's such stigma that surrounds addiction, you know, you don't hear that much about it. There's not enough money that goes towards it. And with all this stuff pouring across our borders, and, and we're an addicted nation, you know. We uh, we, we self-medicate. And... Uh, we, we, we won't legislate our way out of this and we want, we want arrest our way out of it, but we can't educate our way out of it. You know, that's what me and Lydia try to do all the time is just try to reduce that stigma that keeps people from raising their hands or keeps families from raising their hands and asking for help. Do you feel like now that we're, you know, post COVID, you're, you're finally back out on the road a lot talking and stuff. Does that feel good? Oh yeah, it does. There's just, you know, there's nothing better than that interaction, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean you're... Zoom was good for about a week. <laughs> now let me ask you this one thing for the Bucks. Did you ever know Gary Horton? Why does that name sound familiar? He was a scout with the Bucks. I worked for him back in the yes, day. Yes, I do know him. Yeah. I haven't heard that name in forever. Yeah, I was. He was a guy. He was uh, kind of a uh, was kind of a uh, heavy big set guy with blonde curly hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a great man. He, he gave yeah, uh huh. He gave me some opportunities oh God, early I on. Heard that name in years. <laughs> yeah, he gave me some opportunities early on, and uh, you know, he was one of those guys I kind of burned through addiction, and have since made amends. I don't keep too close contact with him, but he was a good man, and I figured he was. He loved Coach McKay, and. He was at first. He was at the forefront of the the whole Bucks organization, and he just loved Tampa Bay, loved the, the that that organization, and loved guys like you. Man, we had some great athletes. You know, we never won any games. We were a horrible team, but man, <laughs> we, we we had some great athletes, and uh, we we played some good football. Hey, and anything else before I let you go? Anything else for anybody in recovery? I'll put all the all the links in the show notes and stuff like that. No, no, I appreciate you talking about Off Center, the book, and you can go to offcenter.com and that'll take you to the Amazon link that you can order. But yeah, Coach Dicka wrote the forward for it. There's a lot of great endorsements in there. Coach Taft, Coach Cheryl, a uh, lot, a lot of real, a lot of really cool stuff in the book. And uh, I hope everybody gets the opportunity to read it. But and also my pro athletes in recovery dot org, uh, the work that I do with athletes or anybody else, not just athletes. You know, I do here at White Sands Treatment Center here in Tampa and Fort Myers. 
That's terrific, dude. Randy, thank you so much for carrying the message, man. Oh man, this is uh, this is uh, I'm honored. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got it. And I'll tell Christine, my buddy down here in Waco, I'll tell her you said hey. Yeah, yeah, please do. All right, brother. Thanks a lot, Randy. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. All right, see you, man. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.